could invite you to open your Bible to the book of First and Second Thessalonians. Both of those books we'll look at this morning. First and Second Thessalonians, primarily Second Thessalonians. First of all, I want to begin as you're turning there with an apology uh, to let's see to Jerry and to Josh and to Peyton because I didn't get the memo about the blue shirts and the khaki pants. Uh, they all came dressed appropriately, and I failed in that, so I apologize. Um, but hopefully you can overlook that. We have with us this morning uh, Mandy Dallas from the South Salem, Con- uh, South Salem Congregation, South Salem Elementary School. It's a congregation, isn't it? It's a congregation of people. Uh, so, but she's with us this morning, and um, I- I'm going to allow you to speak through me. Is that all right? She is here to express her sincere appreciation to the congregation here for the kindness and the benevolent work that we've done in, in providing some, uh, some aid and some help uh, over, oh, I don't know how long we've been doing it. It's been a while, hasn't it, Barry? Uh, it's been quite a while, and uh, she's here just to thank us for that. And if you would, just hang out for a few minutes when we're done today and give folks an opportunity to come meet you, and, and uh, you can tell us a little bit more about what you got going on there. It sounds fantastic. This is a great church. And uh, we're excited to be able to be in the community and to do, do some uh, acts of kindness for others. It's just a wonderful thing that we can do together. First Thessalonians is just a fantastic book written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, one of those uh, folks that we read about in the New Testament, not only about him, but things from him as he's guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're told that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. And so the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. And we don't want to uh, privately interpret what he has written. We just want to read what he's written. And uh, as we read what he's written, understand it and apply it to our lives. And so that's what we're going to do. But he writes First Thessalonians in about 51 A.D., and then the best we can tell, he follows up with 2 Thessalonians right after that. And so whatever the content is in 1 Thessalonians sort of bleeds into 2 Thessalonians, and it all fits nice and neat together. And so in 1 Thessalonians, 89 uh, verses there, and one out of every eight verses in 1 Thessalonians has to do with the second coming. And so a question for us then is, Do you reckon it's important that we know what God has to say about the second coming of Jesus? Certainly it is. Uh, You know, people all over the world have different ideas about the second coming of Jesus. I suspect there are some who would say that, well, Jesus was just a man, and so as a man, he he died, and and, uh, we probably won't see him again. So there are some people that would probably approach Jesus in that way. There are some people that don't believe that Jesus was uh, even someone who existed, just a figment of man's imagination. And so we don't have to worry about seeing that Jesus. That's what some people say. There are some people that say that when Jesus came to the earth, he was just rejected. True statement, though, isn't it? He was rejected. But he was so rejected that he wasn't able to establish his kingdom And so what he did instead was he set up his church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, Upon this rock I'll I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, but I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. 
Colossians chapter 1 says that the church and the kingdom are one and the same. And so there's some folks that would say that Jesus, you know, he, he came to establish that kingdom but wasn't able to, so he established the church instead. And so um, is that what the Bible, well, no, that's not what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say about the second coming of Jesus? Well, if you were here last week, you know what the Bible says. You know that one of these days the Lord is going to, he's going to come in the same manner that he departed, Acts chapter 1. And how did he depart? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and following, that he, he ascended up in the air into the clouds, and the angel came down and told the disciples who were looking up into the air and watching Jesus ascend, he said, why stand you here gazing up into the heavens? Don't you know that this Jesus who has left you is going to return in like manner? And he will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And when he returns, the Bible tells us there that there's going to be a shout, there's going to be the voice of the archangel, and there's going to be, as it were, the trump of God. Now, there are some folks that would say that when all of that transpires, there's going to be kind of phases of things that have got to take place. Well, there's, there's going to be a rapture. That means a secret of snatching up. There's going to be seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus is going to descend and sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then after that, all of the enemies will be destroyed and then it'll be heaven. But again, that's not what we studied last week from First Thessalonians and Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. And so what we do know from those passages is that Jesus is going to come in the clouds and we'll go meet him and the Bible says we will forever be with the Lord. But we've got to be ready for that. You remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Wherein the elements being on fire shall be dissolved. That's the earth. Elements being on fire shall be dissolved. And, and then what? We're going to go be with him and forever we'll be with the Lord. So we've got to be ready for that. So as we're thinking about the merciful judge, Jesus, and one of these days standing before the merciful judge, what do we do in preparation for that day? What do we do in preparation to get there? Let's have some slides. Next slide, please. All right, so the first thing I want us to consider is this. We've got to, we've got to be mindful of our aim. So if you're in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, what I want us to think about is we've got to be mindful of our aim for spiritual excellence. Uh, do you like to play darts? Anybody like to play darts? Nobody? Two? Three? Oh, now we've got a few honest people in the room. Okay, thank you for raising your hand. So playing darts is a lot of fun. How many of you hit the bullseye every single time? This will really tell who's telling the truth. Okay, so we've got... Okay, we've got more honest people here now. Okay, good. So we're probably not going to hit that bullseye every single time. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just aim for that center spot and every time you threw the dart, you would hit it? I mean, every single time you could do that? You know what we call that? We call that perfection. If I were to throw out a, uh, a Likert scale of 0 to 10 and and uh, zero being the, the low end, as in 
Perfection doesn't exist, and 10 being the upper end where perfection is reality. And I would say, where are you at on the Likert scale? And you would say, well, I'm at a 10. Liar. Well, I'm at a zero. Well, you're probably not there either. Perfection is something that just, is, just doesn't exist in the sense that we can always be at that level of perfection. Now, are we going to have some really good days and be right there near it? Maybe. But perfection is something that we strive for with the understanding that we may not quite get there. But that's okay. Because as God is looking at us, you know, you know who he's seeing? You know who God is seeing according to Ephesians chapter 1? He's seeing his son, and he's seeing the seal of the Spirit, which indicates what? In God's eye, I stand perfect. But that has nothing to do with me, other than the fact that I'm striving to the very best of my ability to be a faithful Christian, Revelation 2 and verse 10. But it has so much more to do with him, to do with God. Now, we don't use that as a cop-out. I think sometimes we're, 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 you know, if we're not careful, we can just use that as a cop-out and say, well, I can never hit perfection anyway, so why try? There's some religious folks that believe that. We'll never get there anyway, and therefore, um, we'll just live any way we want to live, and, and um, we'll just expect the grace of God to cover that. You remember Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1? What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You know what some of those folks must have been thinking or, or even saying, maybe doing? Well, the grace of God is so good. If we want to get more of it, we should sin more. Let's just keep sinning. That way we get more grace. God forbid, Paul says. Don't do that. So we don't think about this idea of not attaining perfection, not hitting that bullseye 100% of the time as a reason not to strive for it. We've got to strive for perfection. We need to. Now look at the text. Chapter 2, verse 1, keeping in mind that chapter 1 was all about the Lord is coming. It's a reality. We've got to be ready for it. If we're ready, it's going to be a great day. If we're not ready, it's not going to be a great day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, we beseech you. I love the way Paul uses that. He uses that word a lot in his writings. We beseech you. We beg you. We, we, we implore you. Brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. All right, we put a peg there for a second. I don't want us to miss something. It's, it's, in the, it's in the details, we might say. It's in the fine print. In verse number one, it says, we beseech you by the coming of our Lord. The language there is the word parousia, which is a word that was often used to talk about the coming of a king. Now, what, what do some folks suggest? We mentioned it just a minute ago. That one of these days, Jesus is going to come back to be the king. No, Jesus is the king. And when he comes back, he's not coming back to become the king. He's coming back as the reigning king. But then, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us, 
that on that last great day, what's he going to do? He's going to put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until the last enemy is destroyed. And the last enemy that is destroyed is, you know what? That's right, death. The last enemy that's destroyed is death. And so when the last enemy is destroyed, death, and that's what happens on that last great day, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Jesus is going to cease his reign. And then we're, he's going to go back to the right hand of the throne of God. And we're going to go be with him, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 11. Oh, that's going to be, that's going to be a great long day. One eternal day. And then it says in verse number 2, given the fact that he's coming, the king is coming, don't be shaken in mind or troubled. There are some folks out there that want to stand in the way of our progress as God's people. In fact, they are so committed to their cause that they will, they will infiltrate, if you will, the collective people of God, and they'll become, as it were, God themselves. Look at this passage. This is, this is, in fa- this is fascinating. Let no man deceive you, verse 3, by any means. For that day shall not come, the coming of, of the Lord, that last great day. That day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, Parenthetically, Paul often used the word temple in text to be a reference to the church. Sitteth in the temple or church of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Don't you remember I told you these things? And the question always becomes then, who is the son of perdition? Who, who is it? son of male gender there's some who would suggest that this is actually uh, neuter in, in uh, gender in Greek really irrelevant to the point but who is the son of perdition I don't know I'm just going to be honest with you I don't know I know what some of the theories are but here's one thing that I would suggest in our Bible study is that we always look at the text within its context. Otherwise, it just kind of becomes a pretext to whatever we want to believe, right? And so if we think about this passage in its context, then the disciples, as they were reading this and hearing about it, no doubt expected that this was something that was happening in their time or soon within their time now I know that some folks have said that the son of perdition is coming later maybe even the 7th century uh, with the advent of Catholicism in 606 AD I, I know that some would suggest that I'm not sure that's the case seems like contextually this goes back to the 1st century so who would it be 
What if it was a Roman ruler? Would that fit the context? Would that fix the, t- the, the, the timing of this? What do we know about rulers such as these? They would come into the body, if you will, and set themselves up as what? As deity, as God. Is that a possibility here? Sure. Is there a principle that we can pull out from this? Since we don't know who the son of perdition, since scripture doesn't tell us, is there a principle here? Obviously there's a principle. As we're striving for perfection, don't allow yourself, let's not allow ourselves, to be derailed from the truth and from serving the one true living God. Wouldn't that be the good principle to pull out of here? I want you to leave your finger there in 2 Thessalonians and turn over to the book of Jude. I'm not going to tell you which chapter. I'm, I'm confident you'll land on the right one. But the book of Jude. Now listen to verse number 1. I, w- I want us to just start there. Jude the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to them that are sanctified, set apart by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We could probably take that verse out and put it into 2 Thessalonians without changing the tenor of what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Wouldn't you agree with that? Once and for all, earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so we contend for that faith earnestly, that genuine faith, the faith, the system, if you will. We contend for that. And we don't let anybody come in and try to guide us off track. As the false deity, if you will, is being described here in 2 Thessalonians. So, we think about... The second coming and standing before the merciful judge. That, that day is coming. It's a reality, chapter 1. But in chapter 2, we've got to aim for perfection in view of that coming day. But number 2. Next. I know I've thrown you off with the slides. It's just pictures. That's my fault. Number 2. We've got to aim at God in prayer. We need to aim at God in prayer. You know, when you and I pray, let's not forget to pray. You know what I mean? Prayer becomes almost habitual. It's just a habit. We sit down at the table and there's the food before us and, all right, who's got the prayer? All right, let's jump in there. Let's, let's, let's check that off. We've got to get after this 
well, this is the church, so I'm going to say fried chicken and mashed potatoes and green beans. All right, we've got to get after that. So who's going to pray it up first? Oh, it's, the, the sun has gone down. It's time to go to bed. All right, time to have that evening prayer. And it becomes just so habitual. It's, it's what Jesus would call what? Vain repetition. In other words, we're just doing the same thing. We're praying the same thing. And perhaps the heart is not there. Now, Jesus is not saying that we don't pray the same thing. Because there are times in which we pray the same thing. James chapter 5, which Jerry will get to as we talk about uh, the book of James in our Bible class. Sometimes we pray for the same things. But we've got to be careful with that because we don't want it to become rote, vain repetition. We don't really pay attention to what it is we're, we're saying or praying. So when we pray, we've got to pour out our heart to God. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That gives us some pretty good insight into this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, are we chosen? Well, you're, you're, you're chosen, therefore you're going to be saved. That's right. But who are the chosen? What well, says? The chosen of you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The belief of the truth. What does belief mean? We defined that last time. Belief or faith is conviction combined with joyful trust and confidence that leads to obedience. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him believe. That means obedience. And so here it is. This idea of chosen, the chosen ones to salvation are the ones who have believed the truth. Whereto he called you by our gospel, so it's the truth of the gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Hold the traditions. That's caused a lot of folks some trouble there. Hold the traditions. What's Paul talking about by inspiration? He's talking about apostolic doctrine. Well, what is apostolic doctrine? It's Christ's doctrine. What do the apostles come and teach? The teaching of Christ. And so when we're talking about the traditions, we're talking about the apostles' doctrine, which ultimately is the doctrine of Christ. And we've got to hold to that doctrine of Christ. And Paul is saying that he has aimed to God in heaven in prayer. Specifically, thankful that here we've got some fellow believers who have held firmly to the doctrine of Christ. And so when we put all of this in its context, as, as we prepare for that, that last great day, and we're all going to be there, some are going to hear the words come, and some are going to hear the words depart, Matthew 25. But we're all going to be there, and as we're there, we're going to be ready based on the fact that we have aimed for perfection, and that we've aimed at God in prayer. But then number three, and we're going to move into chapter three. We want to aim toward heaven for the prize. 
I want to aim toward heaven for the prize. Now, this image, would you say this looks like it could be in Virginia? Maybe. It could. I mean, it's possible. I'm thinking maybe it's a little high. But uh, it's possible. It's pretty, isn't it? I know some of you are looking at that thinking, I think I want to hike that. Because that's what I'm thinking. And uh, some of you are thinking, yeah, I might like to do that, but now I think I'm just going to lie down until that thought, thought and feeling just passes me by and then I won't have to worry about it anymore. But, boy, that, <laughs> that, that just looks really neat. But you know what? To get to that point where, where Jerry is up there, when I saw that image, I was, I was convinced that's got to be Jerry up there. Uh, but, but when we get to that point where Jerry is up there, then um, it's taking work. It's taking work to get to that point. It's, it's not necessarily easy going. Now, I see the trail there, but I bet you that, that trail with the gravel on it was slick in some spots. That gravel kind of slides out from underneath you. I bet you it was, uh, I bet you that was a tough climb that looks like quite a bit of elevation there. It's hard. It's hard. But as, as he's paused for just a moment, He's probably uh, searching for his bottle of water, get some water, and enjoying the view. Enjoying the view. And one of these days, if we put in the work, we're going to get up there and we're going to enjoy the view, if you will. Speaking accommodatively, of course. And my, it's going to be worth it. The work's going to be worth it. So let's think about this aiming toward heaven for the prize if you look there in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And I want to stop right there just, just to make an observation. And Paul is not selfishly, even though there wouldn't be anything wrong with him asking for personal prayer, but in, in this passage, he's not selfishly saying, pray for me and my work as a minister of the gospel. But he says, pray for us. Pray for us. Your part with this work with me. Pray for us. But more specifically, that the word of the Lord may have course... The free word free is supplied by the English translation. But that the word of God may have course. In other words, that there won't be anything to hinder its being spread to other folks. Because the thought is, it's, not everybody's going to be open to it. And some folks are going to stop it. Remember the mountain, the climb? It's going to be tough. Some folks are going to stop the course of the word of God. Verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. The climb's going to be hard. Pray for us that we will be delivered from some of those challenges that the Word of God may have course. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do... And will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting 
for Christ. Now, I want you to prepare yourself mentally for the next few verses. Because it's in the next verse that our Bible reading of 2 Thessalonians often picks up. We pick up in, in, in this passage, we forget about the context of the previous verses of chapter 2 and chapter 1. In this context, it's talking about what? Withdrawing ourselves. We had some good lessons on this on Wednesday night recently. But withdrawing ourselves. What is he talking about here? Let's find out. And I'm going to bring you back to the context in just a second. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's already got my attention. When he says command, number one, and number two, whose authority? Jesus. That you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. What does tradition mean? We just said it. Apostles' doctrine, doctrine of Christ. Every brother, talking about fellow Christians, withdraw from, withhold, the idea withhold, separate. In other words, we're not enjoying the buddy-buddy relationship that we did enjoy. That walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Okay, what is the overall context that we're talking about here? Just think about it. The overall context is the second coming of Christ, right? And in view of the second coming of Christ, there are going to be some challenges, so we've got to persevere. There are going to be some that would come in and subvert the doctrine of Christ, would set themselves up as God, having all authority. So we better pray. Then the Word of God, we want that Word of God to have free course. Look at the next verse. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Out of step. Disorderly means out of step. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. All right, who's walking disorderly here? And why? What's going on? Second coming of Christ? Living in view of it? Preparing? Persevering? Aiming for perfection? Praying? We want the Word of God to get spread. We've got to spread it, but it's going to be hard. So pray for that free course. And guess what? There are some folks who, believing that the second coming is at hand, are going to just sit over here and rest on their laurels and not be like Paul and the other disciples and get out there and do the work and spread the gospel. And Paul is saying that we understand that we're worthy of support in that effort, but we're not taking support in that effort here. And there are other occasions that Paul talked about that for various reasons. And then he says in verse 9, Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. Follow us. Those are resting on the law. Follow us. For even when we're 
we were both with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk dis- among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Not them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. What is he talking about? He's talking about doing the tough stuff. What is the tough stuff? In view of Jesus coming, climbing that mountain, that hard thing of climbing the mountain for heaven. What is the tough stuff? The tough stuff is doing the work of the gospel. That's the tough stuff. The tough stuff is a relationship dynamic change when some folks decide, well, you know what? The second coming is at hand. I'm just going to sit on my laurels and I'm, going to, I'm just going to rest. Y'all do it. I'm just going to rest and I'm going to expect you to support me as I rest in view of that second coming. That's what this passage is talking about. I think we've often taken this passage out of context, but that's what it's talking about. And so who are, in this context, who are we withdrawing from? Who, who is that relationship um, dynamic changed with? Lazy folks, really. Lazy folks who are expecting everybody else to take care of them. And then you look at the next part of the passage. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, And if any man obey not our word by this apostle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Account him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. I want to pause there for just a second. Now there are other passages in the New Testament that talk about the subject of fellowship. That's not the point of this lesson. The point of this lesson is as we're living in view of eternity and the second coming of Jesus Christ, we've got to aim for perfection. Understanding that we won't always get there, but we're constantly aiming for it. We're going to do our best to follow the Lord, even though some people will try to subvert the gospel. And then we always want to keep our eyes on God. You know, if we're constantly talking to God and allowing Him to talk to us as we read His Word, we're... (laughs) We're going to be in pretty good shape, don't you think? And then, knowing that he's coming, be ready for the tough stuff. Be ready for that hard work. Put in the work, and don't expect other people around you to do it for you. Because you know what? If that's your attitude, you know what Paul is saying here? You shouldn't even eat. You shouldn't even eat. I don't know about you, but I like to eat. I, I, I like to eat. And I want to, I want to be able to enjoy my meal. And I want to think that as God looks on me and as I'm enjoying my meal or if I'm, I'm enjoying other things in life, meal kind of represents things of enjoyment and fulfillment as I'm enjoying things in life, I, I want to have a peace about me that says, Neil, it's okay. You can have fun in this life. You can enjoy things. You can enjoy your meal. But do the work. Do the work. You with me?
I want to go to heaven. I suspect you do too. I'd, I would seriously doubt that there's a single person in this room that doesn't want to go to heaven. I mean, if, if you don't want to go, I, I, I don't know why you're here. I'm glad you're here. So I think you want to go to heaven. But the reality is, as much as I don't like it, not everybody's going to go to heaven. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But, contrast, he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say to me, well, let me go over there. I've just gone blank on that. I, I, I blame it on COVID brain. I was telling somebody that the other day. I've got, I've got COVID brain, and so I forget things sometimes. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. All right, what's he saying? He's saying that there are some folks that want to go to heaven. There are some folks that are religious. But there are some religious folks that want to go to heaven that aren't going to go to heaven. And I don't want that to be me. That idea scares me. That I could be religious, but I could be religiously wrong. That I could believe in Jesus and call on the name of Jesus, but he says depart. So that thought scares me. But here's the confidence that I have. That whenever I do what God says do to become a Christian... I believe God's going to keep his word. And he's going to save my soul. So what did he say do? Well, Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you nay, if you're reading from the King James Version, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I don't want to perish, do you? I know what that means. It means to be lost. We talked about that last week. I don't want to be lost. I don't want to perish. So what do I need to do? I need to repent. What does that mean? It means to change my mind. That's all it means. Look it up. You don't believe me? And I, I would encourage you to look it up. Repent. Change your mind. Now that change of mind results in an action change, doesn't it? It has to. It necessitates that. But that's not all I have to do. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if we confess him before men... Him will I confess also before my Father, which is heaven. But if I deny him before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. So if I deny Jesus, he's going to deny me. But if I confess him, he's going to confess me before God. So I want to confess. But that's not all. I've got to be baptized. I know some folks, I, I know that sometimes we get hung up on this idea of baptism. Well, baptism is, that's a work. Well, it is a work, but it's not a work of you earning anything. 
It's a work of obedience, and there's a difference. Well, what is that work specifically, that work of baptism? Baptism is an immersion in water. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says, The like figure word to even baptism doth also now save us. You want to be saved? We have to be baptized. That's what Peter said. Why? It seems so silly to be baptized, to be saved. I, that's just so silly. Well, beside the fact that Peter, the inspired writer, inspired by God, said to do it, beside that fact, Acts 2 and verse 38, Luke is writing there. He says that we have to repent and be baptized, every one of us, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. Oh, that's the purpose. We're baptized to have our sins washed away. And when our sins are washed away, we're saved. Now we don't stop our process. That's what the last two weeks have been about. We don't stop our process. We keep aiming toward heaven. Maybe you've done the things we've just talked about. You've, you've, you've followed that prescription in the text. and Maybe you're a Christian, but you haven't been climbing the mountain for a while. You just kind of been hanging out down low because you look up there and you think, man, that's a lot of work. It is. It is. But my, oh my, what a view it will be. Do you need to become a Christian? Do you need to be a faithful Christian? Think about it. And if this morning's invitation is yours, we invite you to come as together we stand and as we sing.